Well, hello again. I'm Doug Moss, one of the pastors here at St. John, and we're continuing with Divided We Fall. If you weren't here last week, uh, Dion Garrett talked about how the first step of being people who bridge divides and reconcile uh, different people is that we've got to get near to those who are not like us, uh, because if we're not near them, we can't be people who bridge the gap. And now today I'm going to be talking about step two of that, and I'm going to be using uh, the filter of bridging the divide with the gender issues that we have facing us in this country today. And, and I tell you, I, we, we set these series months, if not up to a year in advance, and the timeliness of this week just continues to boggle my mind, and it's proof that God is truly guiding us with his Holy Spirit as we make these series, because uh, you're a well-informed bunch. Uh, I'm sure you've been following the news, and uh, and so you know that an influential leader has been forced uh, to resign his position uh, as a result of several alleg- of allegations made by several women, many of them anonymously. And to be clear, this man uh, did nothing illegal. Uh, he committed no crimes. Uh, no one's accusing him of, of having had an affair or uh, assaulting anyone. Uh, at, at worst, these women are saying that he did things that made them feel uncomfortable. And for that, he's had to step down from a position where he was doing much good uh, in the world, where he was making an impact at the national and the international level. Uh, And if you've been following along, you're probably figuring out who I'm talking about. I'm I'm referring to, of course, Democratic Senator Al Franken. Right? Is this where you were tracking with me? No? Not who you thought I was saying, right? See, we have these scripts uh, that we follow, and, and as we're following along, you know, we think we know where the story's going, and we blindly follow the script, and, and then something comes along which maybe hopefully shows us that our script is insufficient uh, for what we need to do to be division bridgers. Uh, because not only, of course, was that Democratic Senator Al Franken, but that was also Bill Hybels just this last week, who is a prominent Christian pastor uh, and leadership uh, seminar uh, man. And so some of you, depending on the script you follow, there's probably one of these guys that you maybe are, are more thinking, you know, he got, got what he was deserving, you know, you know, it's just, it was fair. And maybe one of these guys are thinking, mm, I think he was maligned, I think it was unfair what happened to him, I think it was a travesty. Uh, but there are also some of you that are looking at this and saying, honestly, both of them got what they deserved. Uh, you know, women have been denigrated and dismissed uh, and maligned for decades, uh, if not longer. Uh, and, and it's finally time for a reckoning. That there's an injustice that needs to be righted. Uh, and, and you're saying, this is fine, this is good. But no matter which of those scripts you follow, uh, I feel like this story only ends in one way, which is that the gender divide becomes yet another battlefront in, in all the many divisions that continue to torment and plague our culture and our country. And if we uh, just accept those stories as good enough, if we, if we blindly continue to follow these scripts, uh, then it will end badly, I think, for everyone involved with more hostility, more anger, more division, unless somehow someone finds a way to change the script. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning, is what could it look like and be to change the script? And again, God's timing is amazing because this Bible passage was set quite a while ago, but I think it is so timely and so important for the gender divisions that plague us right now uh, and for this step that we're going to be pursuing, step two, which is changing the script. Now, before I get into it, I would encourage you to not listen to this like a Bible story. 
right, I'm not going to be dissecting and unpacking it. I'm just going to be reading it straight. Uh, and I'd encourage you to put yourself in the position of the people, the contemporary Israelites and people who would have been hearing this at the time. Because you see, Jesus was this influential, popular leader. People did pay attention to him, just like we pay attention to the news about, about the influential people in our society today. People were, were constantly hanging on every word. And what's the new crazy thing that Jesus did today? And, and they couldn't wait to hear about what this guy was doing because he was making such an impact. And so I'd like you to put yourself in that mindset. We're not going to be dissecting this yet. We'll, do, we'll unpack it a little bit more later. But just react to this as if you were hearing it like a contemporary news story, as something that mattered and was going to have an impact on you and your family's life. So here's the story. Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Gentile woman who lived there came to him, pleading, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. For my daughter is possessed by a demon that torments her severely. But Jesus gave her no reply, not even a word. Then his disciples urged him to send her away. Tell her to go away, they said. She is bothering us with all her begging. Then Jesus said to the woman, I was sent only to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel. But she came and worshiped him again, pleading again, Lord, help me. Jesus responded, it isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. She replied, that's true, Lord, but even dogs are allowed to eat the scraps that fall beneath their master's table. Dear woman, Jesus said to her, your faith is great, your request is granted. And her daughter was instantly healed. Matthew chapter 15. Now as you reacted to that story, you might have noticed something that that I certainly noticed, uh, which is this, Jesus comes across as kind of a jerk in this moment, doesn't he? I mean, we're used to the way that Jesus described, oh, he's so kind, he's loving, he's forgiving, he's so accepting of everybody. Uh, and then you come across this story, and it's kind of like the needle scratch. You're like, what? what is going on uh, here? This doesn't sound like the Jesus I know. And people have spent a lot of time trying to explain away and understand what's going on here. Why is Jesus, who's usually so nice, come across so cruel? in this story. I mean, people even speculate, for example, this story is only in two of the three synoptic gospels. And some people are saying it's because the, the third one, which is the gospel of Luke, is that uh, Luke was mostly to unbeliever, like non-Jewish people, Gentiles, like this woman. Uh, and that Luke himself was like, they're not going to get this story. This, if I try and share this story with Gentiles, it's just going to be so offensive to them, they won't hear it. And so he just left it out. That's how disconcerting and weird this story was. Uh, and and when you look, if you look at the commentaries and all the scholars and theologians, they spend a lot of ink on this one issue, which is why is Jesus so mean in this story? And the answer that they all pretty much all come to is he's testing the woman's faith. He's, he's really, you know, if he just gave in to her demands right away, then we wouldn't know, you know, and she wouldn't know, you know, how, how deep and profound her faith was, as if a woman uh, who's crossed cultural boundaries to try to find some sort of medic, medical or spiritual help for her doctor doesn't already know the depths of her faith. Uh, but that's the answer that most scholars come to, is that uh, he's testing the faith of this woman. And I can't prove them wrong. They, they might be right. I personally disagree with that assessment. I think it makes far more sense uh, that rather than testing this woman's faith, Jesus is in fact testing the script of his disciples. 
He, you see, he knows that they've got a script that they follow, just like we do with, with, with men in leadership and the, and the way things are going in this country. And, and he took this opportunity to expose to them the flaws in their script so that they could, in fact, learn and change and do something different and be agents of reconciliation and bridging divides. And if we ourselves are followers of Jesus, then we have something to learn from his disciples if that's who this story is ultimately meant uh, to change their worldview and their lives. Uh, And so to unpack that with you this morning, what I really want to focus on is to me the, the pivotal four words of this story, which is this moment where the Gentile woman, when Jesus has just called her a dog... Her her reply, the next four words, that's true, Lord, but. See, she did something amazing and powerful with those four words. See, she did something that in rhetoric is called uh, uh, embracing the premise. You see, there's always when you engage with other people, and this goes across disciplines. This this goes in, and if you're in theater, you understand this, or if you're uh, in speech work, or if you teach people, that um, if you deny the premise... You shut down conversation, you, you take the story to a dead end, you will not effect change if you deny the premise. If you're willing to embrace the premise, you then have power to change the premise. But you have to embrace it first. You can't just deny the premise or you shut everything down. And see, and in this moment, this woman had a choice. Jesus basically called her a dog and she could have denied the premise and she could have said, hey, Gentiles are people too. She could have said, that's not kind, that's not fair. I thought you were the kind of person that could heal my daughter. Uh, How dare you say such a thing? And she could have stormed off and walked away. And then the story would have ended. Instead, she embraced the premise. She said, that's true. Jesus calls her a dog. She says, that's true. She didn't deny it. But then she found a way to change it. And it starts by embracing the premise. And because it's sometimes hard to engage with this when we use biblical examples, I want to give you two more recent examples of this being, uh, of this truth coming into play. All right? Uh, and so one uh, is from uh, the mid 20th century uh, with Viscountess Nancy Astor, uh, who is a British uh, woman who was the first woman to sit in parliament. Uh, back in the, you know, I think 1929 is when she was elected. But then she served at the same time concurrently with Sir Winston Churchill, who was, as many of you know, the prime minister at the time, you know, took the, you know, led them through World War II, all that stuff. Now, Viscountess Astor and Sir Churchill were politically opposed, which also then led to a lot of personal opposition. The two of them would debate in very lengthy and witty ways. Uh, and there's one exchange that's, that's been passed down for 60 years at this point, uh, where, where in a moment of frustration where she and Churchill had been just arguing uh, for just with no, you know, no breakthroughs, no reconciliation, no resolve. You know, finally, in frustration, Viscountess Astor said, if you were my husband, sir, I would poison your coffee. And Sir Winston Churchill replied, if you were my wife, madam, I would drink it. And to dissect the frog for a moment, to kill the joke, do you see why that rings so powerfully even now, today? You see, she said something mean, and, and, and Churchill could have denied that premise in a variety of ways, right? He could have said, you know, how dare you, woman? You know, we're, we're the leaders of this government. You know, we need to speak kindly. And, you know, or he could have said, well, I'd never marry you, right? There were a lot of ways he could have denied the premise, and they would have been much more natural. Any one of us in that situation probably would have been tempted to go with one of those. But instead, he embraced 
the premise. He said, all right, if we were married and if you did poison my coffee, how would I respond? Oh, well, I'll tell you what, right? And then by embracing the premise, he was able to change it. And, and all people, most people would agree, he came out ahead on this exchange, right? And now it's not just about personal conflict. There's even another example that I, I like even more uh, that happened with Muhammad Ali when he was uh, getting on a plane. Uh, see, as you, if you know Muhammad Ali, he was a boxer and he was very just outrageous uh, in the things that he was willing to say. Um, and he's sitting on the plane and the stewardess is giving him the safety speech, right? And you all know the safety speech. It is so just redundant. Everyone's heard it a million times at this point. And they got to the part where she told Muhammad Ali that he needed to buckle his seatbelt, And Muhammad Ali was not used to being told what to do, and so he responded, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And the stewardess, without missing a beat, said, Superman don't need no plane, neither. (laughs) Now, I'm willing to bet in that moment that Muhammad Ali buckled his seatbelt, and it's not because he was wrong and she was right. It was because he got told. <laughs> and, and that's why I think this rhetorical concept is so important and it's going to matter to us as we, as we go through this Bible story and bridging the divides right now. It's because I think we automatically assume that what really matters is right and wrong. What's true, what's not true. But at the end of the day, we're not as rational scientific beings as we'd like to think we are. Uh, that stewardess could have said to Muhammad Ali, you know, all the right, true things, right? She could have said, well, it's an FAA regulation, and trust me, if we're in a crash, you'd really want to have your seatbelt on, right? She could have said true things, and it would not have resulted in changed behavior. But by embracing the premise and twisting it, rhetorically, she was actually able to get the changed behavior that she wanted to get. She wanted him to buckle his seatbelt. And so we need to use this rhetorical truth and apply it to bridging the divides. See, for us, it's not just about denying the premise or embracing the premise. It's also about, when we talk about divides, denying the differences between us and other people or embracing those differences. And again, when we talk about divides, it's so much more tempting and and just natural to deny the differences, to just say, you know, let's just, let's just all get along. Let's just act like, like nothing's dividing us. Let's just, let's just move on. Uh, I, we've seen this especially uh, in racial issues and divides in our country, right? Like the, the phrase for a long time, certainly as I growing up, was, was white people saying, you know what, I don't even see color. And that sounded like a noble thing and a good thing, but, but if, you, if you have this rhetorical understanding, you recognize that what's actually going on there is you're denying that there are different colors. Uh, and, and as we've seen how that's played out, what you see from minorities is they don't want you to act like there's not different colors. They don't want you to act like there's no differences. Uh, they, they want equity and they want good treatment, but they recognize that the only way that's going to happen is by embracing the differences first. And it's the same with gender. Uh, it's, it's really tempting and natural to uh, say, well, you know, let's just act like there's no genders at all. Just treat everyone the same. Uh, and, and that's going to be the most fair thing. But that, again, is denying the difference. Instead, if we want to be script changers, if we want to impact the world in powerful ways, I think we've got to start by embracing those differences. Because when we embrace the difference, just like when they embrace the premise in those arguments, then we make a change. Then we do something powerful and amazing. So this is where I hope you are all with me so far that we, as we be divide bridgers, we have to embrace these differences. Because once we embrace them, then and only then can we actually change the script. And I want to talk to you about four biblical principles that I uh, have discovered over the years and as I see represented in our Bible story today. Four ways that we have the power to change the script. 
And before I get into them, I want to already just say this to you. I do not expect or ask anyone to do all four of these things. But what I would encourage you to do as I, as I go through them and talk about the biblical background, to th- look and pick out even one. One that you think, you know what, that's in my wheelhouse. I could do that one thing even starting right now today. And I promise you that if this body of believers, if this group of people, every one of us picked one way that we could start changing the script, we would already make an impact that would shock the rest of the city. I believe that so firmly. So with that, let's work through these four biblical principles and be looking for the one that you think makes the most sense for you uh, to tackle and start being a script changer in your life and in the lives of those around you. So the first one is this. It sounds simple, but it's not. Admit that I don't understand. Admit it. Just say up front, I don't understand. And this is a hard one. It's, it's simple to do, but it's a hard one to agree with because I'll speak for myself. I pride myself on my understanding. I work hard to pay attention to news and trends and philosophies. Uh, I work hard to know what's going on in the lives of people around me because I'm expected to speak into lives with wisdom and understanding and counsel uh, and godly advice. And, And I pride myself that I'm good at my job. I think I understand things. And yet if I want to be a script changer, I have to start by saying, actually, you know what? No. I really don't. At the end of the day, when we're talking about people who are different from me, I don't understand, I can't understand as much as I'd like to think I do. And as long as I think I do, I won't be effective. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 5, and there's one verse especially. Uh, This is a verse, by the way, that uh, if anyone ever polled me, and no one does, but if anyone polled me and said, Doug, what's one Bible verse that you wish more people knew? This is the one I would pick. It's a longer verse, but just the first half is this where Paul is saying to Christians, it is not my responsibility to judge outsiders, the people who are different from me, the ones who aren't part of my tribe, my faith, my culture, my gender. It's not my responsibility to judge them. Because, and what I think he understands is because I don't understand. I don't know what it's like to have a life that's different from mine, to have a different background, to have all these different experiences feed in. I don't understand. And if I don't understand, then I can't judge but it is such a hard change to make in our script. And I'll even show you in the Bible story today, right? We saw these disciples and their interaction with this Gentile woman. And I guarantee you that these disciples did not understand where this woman was coming from. Because if they had, they would not have been so callous to her situation, right? I mean, we're reading this and we're like, like she had a daughter that was being tormented by a demon. Like, this is hard. This is awful. And if they truly understood that, you think they would have just said, oh, get rid of her. Get, get, oh, she's bugging us. I don't think they would. And, and I think it's hard because they did understand their own script, right? They knew that life was hard. I mean, all of those disciples, they gave up livelihoods, they gave up family, they gave up uh, having a consistent place, a a pillow and a bed to sleep on every night. They gave all that up to follow Jesus. And I think that that leaves them with this idea that like, hey, we understand hardship. We understand despair. Like we've been there. Like like, like we've been in a situation where we didn't have enough food to eat, uh, where we were in a boat and we thought we were going to drown. Like we've seen hard stuff. And this lady comes, she's got her sob story. Oh, we understand. We know what it's like. And, and, And so they don't actually engage with her and the divide stays. Whereas if they'd been able to say, I don't know what it's like to be a mom. whose daughter is in such pain and torment that I'll do anything, that I'll even cross cultural divides. Like this woman is a Gentile. She knows what Jews think of her. And she was willing to go into the situation where she would be scorned, where she would be treated badly because she would do anything that it takes. And I promise you, I can't understand that kind of passion. And those disciples certainly didn't. 
we have to remember first and foremost that we don't understand. And if we even started there, I think so much conversation would start to happen between us and others. And already that would be a huge impact on changing the script for the world and our community around us. But we don't just have to stop there, right? We start by admitting we don't understand, opening those dialogues. Uh, But then another biblical principle, a second way that we can be script changers is to put the best spin on others. Uh, And if you don't recognize this as a biblical principle, this is actually the eighth commandment uh, or the ninth commandment, depending on how you count. But the eighth commandment is so often oversimplified uh, to say, thou shalt not lie. That's what everyone thinks the eighth commandment uh, means. That's really uh, a bad simplification. That that is one tiny portion of what the eighth commandment is about. It's actually about thou shalt not bear false witness. And that means so much more than just not lying. Uh, and, and don't even just take my word for it. Let me introduce you to Martin Luther, a, a great theologian, scholar, uh, a guy that knew what he was doing. And when he was reflecting and, and teaching about the Ten Commandments and the ways that we are called to act, and he talked about, you know, the, you, know you shall not steal, and you shall not commit adultery, you shall, you shall not murder. But then he gets to the commandment, you shall not bear false witness. And he says, look, this is what it really means. It means this. In addition to one's own person, spouse, and temporal possessions... There is a further treasure that the individual cannot do without, namely honor and good reputation. Living in human society is tolerable only if one is not in public disgrace or contempt. We should note that no one has authority publicly to judge and reprove his neighbor, not even if he has seen him commit the sin directly, unless he has specifically been given authority to judge and reprove. For there is indeed a great difference between these two, judging a sin and knowing about a sin. If I poke my nose in and judge and condemn, then I fall into a worse sin than his. So, when you get to know about a sin, and by the way, I love this visual, so picture it with me. Let your ear become its grave and shovel the dirt in on top of it and do not resurrect it until the day that you are appointed judge. This is what Martin Luther says the Eighth Commandment is about, this biblical principle of putting the best spin on others. It's saying that you could even know the very worst thing they'd done, and you would say, you know what? I don't know enough to judge. I can't can't actually speak to this. And I know that the disciples didn't understand this biblical principle in the moment because this is exactly what happened and what I think Jesus was testing when he said those cruel things to the woman. You see, when he says, you know, implies that she's a dog at the table, you know, what you don't hear is any of the disciples saying, oh, Jesus, how rude. What, what I think you can instead infer from their silence is they're thinking, oh, yeah, oh, we, we know what those Gentiles are like. Yeah, they're pagans, they're dogs. Yeah, that's, that's about right. See, Jesus was, in fact, confirming the script that they already had in their heads. They were not putting the best spin on this woman. They really did actually think she was a dog worthy of being spoken to uh, in harsh and unrespectful ways. And it's not just hard for the disciples. I think we actually live in a time where it is the hardest it has ever been to keep the Eighth Commandment. Why? Because we have so much information about people that I would rather we don't have. My wife uh, has been into true crime lately and been reading about you know, stories and murders. And, and she was sharing with me about this one trial, the murder of a guy named Trevor Alexander. And, and she was telling me, we know everything about this guy and his girlfriends and, and the woman who murdered him. You, know, we, you can watch every minute of every hour of the many hours of their trial. All of his journal entries are online. I was looking over, she was reading something on the computer, and I said, what are you reading? Oh, the diary of this guy that was murdered. And I'm like, we can know that? 
we can, we can hear and read. Uh, like, like, so we know like, like this tragic situation, a man who was killed and the women that were in his life, we know the absolute worst things in vivid detail about everyone involved. And then we have to say, but not going to judge, not, not going to go there. And we leave it, and we have to try to leave it be. That is so hard. It was much easier to keep the Eighth Commandment back when we didn't know things. And yet, even now that we do know things, we've got to find a way somehow to put best spin on the other person. Uh, and, and I see this again, it's so hard as, as we're talking about current events and, and how we've got Al Franken you know, being accused of things by women, and we've got Bill Hybels being accused of things by women. It is so hard to do, and yet I think it is possible to put the best spin on Franken and Hybels and to say, you know what? I really don't think they meant to make those women feel uncomfortable or debased or like they didn't matter. I I really don't think they meant to do that. And I can put the best spin on Hybels and Franken. I can also, at the same time, put the best spin on these women. I can say, you know what? I really don't think she was just trying to take a good man down. I don't think she just hated his ministry or hated his political positions so much that she would just do anything it takes to get this man fired or resigned from his position. And I don't think it's paradoxical or hypocritical to believe both those things. To put best spin both on the men involved and on the women who felt they needed to bring injustice to light. I can believe the best of both and I do not have to demean or malign either party in this issue, but just to say, you know what? This is a hard, messy, uncomfortable world and we are all doing our best to navigate some of the hardest situations that anyone could be asked to. And at the end of the day, can I believe that you're doing your best to navigate it and I'm doing my best and can we believe the best about each other? It's hard to do, but it's a biblical principle we have to follow if we want to be people who change the script and bridge the divides. Uh, Now a third thing, a third uh, way, biblical principle to do this is that we need to willingly give power away. Uh, and our model for this is none other than Jesus himself. Philippians 2 says this about Jesus. It says that you, that's us, we, all of us, we must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus himself had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. Not only did he give them up and become a human, but he gave them up to us. You may not know this, but Jesus has actually bequeathed his divine power to each and every one of you. He says that if you choose to forgive someone here on earth, I actually will bind myself in heaven to your word. And he, and heaven goes, and, and you know, by the way we say, we forgive someone, forgive in heaven. We don't forgive someone, well, there are consequences in heaven. And, and Jesus willingly gave that power to us. He entrusted us with his divine power. That's amazing. And powerful. And and again, you see in our story how the disciples didn't understand that biblical principle. You see, they didn't have a lot of earthly power. They weren't wealthy. They didn't have political clout. But one thing they did have was access to Jesus, right? This influential guy who's making waves everywhere he goes. And the disciples were gatekeepers. They got to decide who came to Jesus and who didn't. This woman came before them. uh, And and in the moment, what their heart was, well, in our power, are we going to let her have access or are we going to try and get her sent away? Uh, we see it not just with women, but children. You know, children are coming and the disciples are saying, oh no, leave Jesus alone. He's a busy man. And Jesus is saying, no, let them come to me. Jesus wasn't clinging to his power and his privilege and authority. He was saying, no, let, let everyone come and be a part of this thing that I have. We have to willingly give power away. 
And I'd like to take a moment here and kind of do a little sidebar and talk specifically to the men uh, in the room. So ladies, you can check out for about two minutes if you want. But men especially, I want to encourage you because I've learned as I've wrestled with this and seen things that I was raised in a way that misunderstood this important biblical principle. It was like a truncated half version of this principle and it's taken me a lot of my life to figure out exactly how wrong it was. And my guess is you were raised that way as well. And so I wanna encourage you with this new thing. See, here's how I was raised. I was raised that men have power, don't abuse it. End of the story. That's the discussion. Don't abuse it. I'd hit my sister. My dad would say, don't you ever hit a sister, right? Like other things um, I could do, I would get in some trouble, whatever. But for whatever reason, that was the worst thing. I hit my sister. That got my dad angry in a way that was really shocking and surprising. Uh, You know, don't you dare do it. And I learned, okay, that's bad. You know, I can't do that. Like that's the one non-negotiable. I can can steal some candy and and I'm okay at the end of the day. But I hit my sister. That was a line too far. And so I grew up with this understanding that as long as I don't abuse my power or misuse it, then that's me fulfilling my responsibility as a man in the society. But the problem is that that left me singularly ill-equipped to deal with the divides that are plaguing us right now. Because as things go on and the genders get so hostile, I'm left here saying, well, I, didn't, I don't hit women, I don't assault women, I don't rape women. Like, what else is there for me to do? Like, all these people are beating up on me and beating up on men, and I'm, I'm doing what I was told. And I think this biblical principle is so important because it actually expands that. See, it's not just about not misusing our power, but it's that all of us need to willingly give our power away, to use it to lift others up, to to help others, to save others, uh, and and not to have it as something we cling to and, and control, but something that we willingly release to those around us. That's what makes us powerful. And men, I don't know about you, but that is actually a charge that I can be inspired about. If the vision of manhood is simply, yeah, just don't hurt women, like, okay, that's a pretty low bar to clear. But if the vision of men is we have power and we can transform a society by the way we use it, well, that gets my blood pumping. That gets me up in the morning. I'm like, all right, I've got something to do, and it's positive, and it's amazing. I'm actually a knight that has uh, obligations to chivalry and greatness that I can give my power away and change the world. Now, women... I'm not a woman. I, I don't really know how you can do this one. Sorry. Um, you're just going to have to figure this out for yourselves. Um, I'm sure there's some wise people you respect. Uh, women, you've got to figure out what this looks like for you to willingly give power away. But I'll, I'll speak to the men, and I'll trust that you are good and noble women, and you will figure out what this biblical principle looks like in your life. So moving on to the fourth one. <laughs> can only share what I got. Uh, but the fourth one, unfortunately, is the hardest. Uh, And I think it is also, though, correspondingly, the most powerful way to change scripts of society around us. And it is to give up all claim to fair treatment. Give it up. Uh, And and I think this one is so hard. These are all hard in in one way or another. I think this one is hard, especially for us as Americans, uh, because... Our national identity is very specific. You know, other countries, they have identities that are based on different things. It's based on an ethnic heritage or a historical heritage, or it's based on a monarchy that's been consistent for generations. We are this rare post-enlightenment country where our national identity is built on rights, right? Like, like that was the Declaration of Independence, was this idea that there are inalienable rights that we all have, and that's what defines us as Americans. And yet the first thing that the Bible tells us to do is that we have to give up our rights, 
And this is one of the areas, there are some areas where the American ethic is, is, I think, aligned with Christianity. This is an area where I think the American ethic and Christianity really do struggle to live in tension because we were raised that as Americans, we defend our rights, but the Bible actually teaches us something different. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. He says, even though I am a free man with no master, and again, he, could, he wrote 2,000 years ago, but he could be writing to the Americans right now in the 21st century. We are free. We have no masters. Nobody is the boss of me. And yet... Paul has willingly become a slave to all people in order to bring many to Christ. And he even gives this example. So, if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live. Because I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. 1 Corinthians 8-10 through is the whole speech. Eating meat is good. It's fine. That's a right. That's a privilege. It's a great thing to have. And Paul's saying, but even that, a good thing, I would give it up if it would keep someone else from stumbling. And we see that in this story because Jesus, you know, he was a promised Messiah to a particular group of people. The Jewish people were the ones who had been promised a savior and a rescuer. And now here's this Gentile woman, someone who's not from his tribe, not from his community, and she's saying, help me too. And Jesus was well within his rights to say, woman, I'm sent to the lost sheep of Israel. I'm sorry, you folks that aren't Israel, you gotta figure it out on your own. And he would have been perfectly right to say so. But he gave up that right. He said, you know what? That's fine. I will, I will help someone even though they're not actually part of my job description as people think it, it is. And not only in this moment where, where he heals a woman's daughter, but he took this to its ultimate conclusion that he who was innocent, blameless, committed no crime, did nothing wrong, was executed. Jesus took this script change truth so seriously that he was willing to die for it. Because he looked at our scripts, he looked at our individual stories, and he saw that each and every one of us, our story ended in death, despair, division. And he was willing to give up all claim to fair treatment as God, as the creator of the universe, and say, I'm going to give it all up so that I can change that script and replace our death with life, replace our despair with hope, and replace our division with the power of reconciliation. Not just God reconciling distant humanity to himself, but looking at all of us and saying, and you can be reconciled with each other because of what Jesus was willing to do on the cross to change each and every one of our scripts. And when a man like Al Franken or a man like Bill Hybels willingly gives up all claim to fair treatment, they are being script changers in a real and powerful way. Again, they, they, if they'd gone to court, I think every one of, both of them would have been acquitted, right? They didn't actually do anything wrong. And yet both of them chose instead, instead of fighting it, instead of, of, of having this big, long examination and, and hearing all this stuff, they said, I'm going to give up my claim to fair treatment, I'm going to resign willingly because they are script changers. And in the same way, the women who go out on a limb to, uh, to call out the Me Too movement, to point out uh, injustices uh, and patterns of, of abuse and, and denigration in their own lives, those women are giving up their claim to fair treatment too. You know, maybe it's easy to say that, uh, you know, for some people that, oh, well, they're just trying to take a good man down, or it's, it's sure interesting, the timing of this. But, but if you look at these women, every single one of them knows that by speaking up to a man in power, her reputation will be dragged through the mud. 
her personal life, every excruciating detail thing that she would rather be left in history and forgotten will be exposed to a critical world who will pounce on everything she's ever done wrong. Her chosen career, the thing that she spent her whole life working to achieve will be done because they know that no one's going to want to work with a woman who's been exposed as a whistleblower and someone who's just looking to take men down. And yet these women, knowing full well that their reputation, their livelihood, their personal lives would all be gone they made the choice to speak up anyway. And they changed the script for a whole society. Because here's the thing, if we're going to change scripts, it's going to cost us something personal. And that is a hard thing to have to just say up front, I wish it were easier. I don't know what costs are ultimately in my path ahead. I don't know what are in yours, but I do know that it will cost you something, which begs the question, is it worth it? It's great that that God chose to change the script on my behalf. It's great that he saved me from a story that ended in death and division and brought me to life and unity. That's, That's fantastic. But am I really obligated to be that kind of a force in my own life? It sounds like it is just too costly. And in that moment, Paul continues to remind us of powerful truth, which is he says this, but among the Lord's people, women are not independent of men and men are not independent of women. Guys, as I've struggled with these divisions, even in my own life and relationships, there are times where I feel it would be so much easier if we just did the whole monk and nun thing. They were clearly onto something. You know, when, when I have an issue with another monk, like we just, we'd just deal with it and we'd move on and, and, and we'd be fine. I, I wouldn't have to do with all this complicated stuff that it feels like every time I try and do stuff with, with, like with my wife or other women, like it would just be so much easier. And yet Paul's saying we need each other and I think that's true. I know in my own life, I would not be qualified to even stand here and be your pastor were it not for the influence of multiple amazing women in my life. And that, and that starts with uh, my mom, who was a trailblazer in integrating the Air Force through gender. She actually was on the committee that integrated the Air Force Academy and, and understood what it would look like to have men and women uh, at this academy for the first time. Uh, I remember my first uh, female boss who, who modeled for me for the first time that I'd ever seen what compassionate leadership had looked like. All my other bosses, you know, all they cared about was tasks, right? Just get the job done. I don't really care about you, and that's fine because that's what we're in. And and, and this woman modeled for me that you can be a leader and and, and get work done and also care about the individual that's working for you. And, And most importantly, and I can't say this strongly enough, most importantly, my own wife. I am more mature, more persevering, more compassionate, more wise because this woman has not given up on me for 10 years. I need her so badly or else I could not be standing here today. And while it's tempting to just go be a monk, I know I would not be a very good monk because then I wouldn't have had her in my life. And just to give you one very quick example of this, I want to share with you the very first major argument that we ever had as a married couple. We were two years in and pregnant with our first daughter. And and this is often the way with these things. We had not planned this. We had a timeline and a schedule for our marriage and our family, and, uh, and uh, this was not it. And as we were facing the, the upcoming birth of our, of our oldest daughter, uh, the, the question came up, who's going back to work and how? And, and we both had different opinions about what the right answer to that should be. And, and as we argued about it and, and came to a place, you know, I, we ultimately landed on the conclusion that, uh, that she would stay home with Fable and, and I would go back to work. And it was an argument, it was a fight, that was fine, um, but it was resolved in the way I thought it needed to be resolved, and so then I moved on. It was a bad fight, and it was only even recently, like in the last year, 
that my wife pointed out exactly how damaging that moment was. That it wasn't just a fight that got resolved. That's what I thought it was because I won. (laughs) But that in that moment, a divide came between us that we have spent the last eight years learning how to overcome. See, because in that moment, she learned something true about me, which was that my script was that a husband is the head of his household. And so if there's a, you know, do your best to get along, try and figure things out together, but at the moment where there's disagreement, the husband just decides. And so in that moment where we couldn't come to peace about who was staying home and who was working, what I finally said to her was, well, you know what? I make more money than you do, so I need to keep working and you need to stay home. And that was devastating for two reasons. One is because three years later, she got a job that made far more money than what I was making. So that came back to haunt me. But secondly, it's because my wife learned in that moment that I would use my financial power, instead of giving it away willingly, I would use my financial power like a club against her the moment it was inconvenient to me. That's the script she learned. But what I can tell you now today is that we are in a far better and healthier place than we've ever been. And it's because we are two people that were not content to settle for the storyline that had been given to us by those around us. That we have worked hard each and every day for eight years since that moment to say we are going to write a new story. We are going to change the script. And we have learned these biblical principles through blood, sweat, and a lot of tears. And we've changed the script for ourselves, for our family, and I hope for so many people around us. And as I look out at this group of people, I am encouraged because I see a world that is filled with scripts that will not resolve the divides. But I see a people who march to a different storyline, who have a God who rewrote the script for each and every one of your behalfs, and who therefore have that power to change the script in our lives and in the lives of those around us. And when we do, we will be a force the likes of which this country and world have never seen. And that's why I am hopeful and encouraged this morning, and I hope you are too. Amen. Please pray with me for a moment. Lord God, you promised when you were sitting with your disciples and saying that you needed to do this amazing, horrific thing of dying on the cross, you promised them that you would send a counselor to us. And so Lord, right now I ask that you would be true to your promise, that your Holy Spirit that you promised us all the way 2,000 years ago would be present in the hearts of each and every man, woman, and child in this room. And that you would use us to change the scripts of those around us in mighty ways. That where there is despair, we would show hope. And where there is division, we would model what reconciliation, love, and unity can look like. Lord, by ourselves, we can do nothing, but with the power of your spirit in us, we can change the world simply by changing our scripts. Amen.